Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday, August 11. I'm Tom Tilley. And in this episode of The Briefing, we'll find out how China is going to manage Delta. Officially, they still think within a few weeks they'll be able to snuff it out. But I think there's a realisation that even if they can, it will come back into the country and cause further problems. We haven't heard much about China and the way they've been handling COVID. And that's because they've been doing it so well. But will Delta change the game? That's today's briefing. First, Katrina Blouse is here. Hey, Katrina, I filled in my census last night. What about you? Oh, God, you've busted me. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. But, you know, I know that not much changes in my house, so mm. I'll fill it out. It'll be accurate. I'll get it in on time. All right. I just didn't sit and do it last night. You'll get a fine if you don't. It, it, I know. I was actually just reminded of how simple it is. There's not that many questions. It literally took about three minutes. Okay, thank goodness for that, because I've been putting it off because, you know, I thought it might take longer, but three minutes I can handle. Yeah, well, we need your data. We need everyone's data to understand this nation and how it works, what makes us tick. Uh, Let's get into the news headlines. Climate politics are back in the headlines with the PM Scott Morrison hitting out at China over its pollution levels in the wake of that IPCC report on climate change. China's emissions account for more than the OECD combined. So the UN's IPCC report called the findings a code red for humanity, saying that within just a decade, global temperatures will rise 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So that means fire seasons will go for longer, there'll be heavier rain and more flooding. Elsewhere, droughts will get worse and cyclones will become more intense. I found this really quite scary, um, the, the, the language they use, that code red, and also it could only be, you know, within 10 years of our lifetime. So in regards to the PM's comments, it is true that China is the world's biggest emitter, contributing around 30% compared to Australia's 1.3%. But here's what the Greens leader, Adam Bant, had to say, hitting back at the PM. Pointing the finger at other countries for climate inaction while failing to do any of the heavy lifting himself. Yeah, the Prime Minister acknowledged the report showed Australia would face serious challenges with climate change, but he again stated his position that global technology, not domestic taxes, would be the solution. But the problem he's going to face is that we may face tariffs or trade taxes from other countries like European nations who are doing more and making sacrifices to curb their emissions. The UK PM Boris Johnson said the world must consign coal to history in order to limit global warming. And the US climate envoy John Kerry called for countries to pursue net zero emissions by mid-century. Yeah, so those global leaders are sort of really talking tough on climate change. So while Scott Morrison might be trying to take the Australian voters with him and I guess address Mm -hmm. the concerns of regional communities... He's going to have to face off with those global leaders later in the year when he goes to the UN summit in Glasgow. And they've also done polling that shows that even though we are in the grips of a pandemic, climate change is still something that's really important to a lot of voters. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects people's vote at the next federal election. Victorian authorities look to extend the Melbourne lockdown with health leaders saying that they want fewer cases infectious in the community. Yesterday, only five of the 20 cases had been in quarantine. We've seen one case uh, a couple of days ago been in quarantine. Uh, Now we've got five. What we want to do is obviously improve on that trend. 
Victorian Health Minister Martin Foley speaking there. Melbourne's lockdown was originally brought in for one week. It was set to end on Thursday night. Uh, meanwhile, where you are, Tom, in New South mm. Wales, yesterday was the worst day of the pandemic so far with 356 cases. Yeah, and authorities admitted they were too late to realise a birthday party in the southwest of Sydney was a super spreader event early in this Delta outbreak. With the benefit of hindsight, I think it's very clear to see that there was a greater risk of the seeding event in Western Sydney, in, in southwestern Sydney, that was appreciated at the time. That's the New South Wales Chief Health Officer, Dr Kerry Chant, facing a state parliamentary inquiry yesterday, where she said she hadn't yet given advice on when Sydney could emerge from lockdown, but she would like to see vaccination rates at 70%. Yeah, so the newspapers in Sydney have been pointing out there seems to be mixed messaging from Kerry Chant, the health officer, and mm. Gladys Berejiklian, who's been saying... Once we hit 50%, we could see some restrictions being eased. So it'll be interesting to see if there is much more of a difference in their position. Mm. Because even though we've been talking about shocking case numbers in New South Wales, there's still been this ongoing debate about which measures are going to be relaxed. So yeah. for a lot of people, they're, they're hearing that going, well, these numbers aren't going down. Why are we talking about easing restrictions? But then the other view on that is that this may never go away, this Delta outbreak, and we have to find ways to live with it and get parts of our economy reopened and also get kids back to schools. Yeah, yeah. And Scott Morrison yesterday was talking about, you know, if you want your families together by Christmas, then we'll need to take these measures. And so we're starting to put that kind of structure and timeline in place now. Uh, 71 of yesterday's cases in Sydney were in the Canterbury-Bankstown district of southwest Sydney, where the Health Minister Brad Hazard said compliance is still a really big issue. There are other communities, other people from other backgrounds who don't seem to think that it's necessary to comply with the law. Yeah, it's amazing to see what percentage of the cases are still coming from just a few suburbs in Sydney. Um, They're just not going down in some of those Western Sydney suburbs. Virginia Dufresne, one of Jeffrey Epstein's longtime accusers, is suing Prince Andrew, saying the royal sexually assaulted her when she was 17. Dufresne now lives in Australia and she filed the civil lawsuit in the Manhattan Federal Court. She claims she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew on three occasions at properties owned by Epstein. And these were the claims that were the basis for that very famous BBC interview in 2019, where Prince Andrew strongly denied any involvement. Dufresne is suing under a New York state law which permits alleged victims of childhood sexual abuse to file civil claims that might otherwise be blocked by statutes of limitation. So this isn't going away for Prince Andrew. Um, no. This, this civil suit will be a big problem for him and the palace. Um, yep. But we've also got the Ghislaine Maxwell trial starting later this year. And also in New York, the governor of that state has resigned after an investigation found he had sexually harassed women and uh, President Joe Biden has called on him to leave office. So a report came out from the New York Attorney General's office finding Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women. He's been denying the allegations of misbehaviour for months, Andrew Cuomo. He even ignored Biden's call to resign. Let's take one thing at a time here. I think he should resign. State legislature may decide to impeach. Yeah, so overnight Cuomo has finally given in and resigned, which means that he won't be impeached, I guess something that he was wanting to avoid. Yeah, it's a massive downfall for Andrew Cuomo, who's been the New York governor since 2011, um, rose to prominence last year. Um, A lot of people would have started to notice him because he was Mm. speaking out against Donald Trump and his mishandling 
of COVID. Some people even thinking that he had a chance of becoming president one day. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because he comes from such a, um, a lineage of um, people in politics. His dad was um, quite prominent himself. So he has been accused of taking advantage of that Me Too movement after he had aligned himself with it. So mm. yeah, as you said, falling on his sword overnight. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you later. Annika Smethurst is about to join us again as we take a look at the way Delta is impacting China's COVID response. You might remember Bill Bertels. Now, he's the ABC's China correspondent. We spoke to him last year when he was living in Beijing, but he was forced to flee back to Australia amid rising political tensions. Now, Bill is in Sydney, but he's still covering China. So we thought we'd check in to find out whether the recent flare-up of Delta cases will force China to rethink its COVID strategy. Bill, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. The common perception people have here in Australia is that until this latest uptick in China, that they'd crush COVID with that big, strong lockdown in February last year and kept cases at close to zero since then. Is that the overall story? To some degree, it's kind of accurate. I mean, they have had incredibly low levels of community transmission over the past year, year and a half, ever since they basically squashed that initial outbreak, it has been incredibly low. It's almost been at zero. There have been days where there have been zero new cases. But the thing is, they've now got a flare up because of the Delta variant. And it's still not a huge amount of daily new cases. Today, I looked, the most recent figures said it was about 110 community transmissions. But the thing is, it's across about six or seven provinces now. So it's not just isolated to one area. And that's the thing that's a bit different this time. Over the last, say, 12 months, since about the middle of last year, they've pretty much squashed COVID down to almost zero, but they've had these flare-ups in particular cities and they'd put in place really tough measures and generally they'd quash those flare-ups. But this time you have a flare-up, which although not particularly big in terms of numbers, it's dispersed across different areas. So before this recent uptick, what sort of measures were they introducing to kill off those little upticks? Initially, we all read about the lockdown in Wuhan for 76 days, and it was really strict, you know. It was people basically locked into their apartments. Later on in the lockdown, they were able to walk outside in their housing compounds. But it was way tougher than what we have here. Nobody could go to the supermarket, for example, and buy groceries. It was all delivered by the residential housing committee and organised that way. But now they tend to be more targeted. So you take the recent outbreak, which started in the city of Nanjing in the east, and the first thing they did is they get a few cases in a district near the airport, so they lock down the housing compounds where the cases are, which isn't dissimilar to what we've seen in Sydney. There have been three apartment blocks in Sydney at various mm. points recently locked down, but these are much bigger housing compounds. You know, we're talking about, say, 10 apartment blocks per compound. Then the thing that they can do in China that they can't really do anywhere else is compulsory mass testing and they do it really quickly, 9 million tests in the space of about three or four days. And once again, that's organised because 
everyone lives in a gated community. Every gated community has like a sort of equivalent of a strata committee. So there's this sort of level of governance at the local housing level, which we just don't have here. And the other thing they have, which is really effective, but once again, you kind of can't do here because of privacy concerns, is they have a health code app, which you basically can't opt out of. And it uses location data. It uses data from all sorts of different agencies. And it means that if you live or if you've been near, say, one of those areas where there was a recent outbreak and then you try to go to the supermarket, you have to show your health code to a security guard or a staff member to go in and the health code automatically, based on your location data, will say, eh, this guy has been near a hotspot, it's a, it's a red traffic light, not a green, don't let him in. And basically those three measures put them together and they've been incredibly effective. I guess that shows that, you know, democracy doesn't have all the answers. Maybe living under one of these regimes works when you need that sort of response from the public. But what does that mean for numbers? I wanted to know when, when you see those released daily figures on cases or vaccinations, how sure can we be that they are correct? Yeah, I think the figures are pretty accurate. Um, there was questions about them initially at the outset, but as we learned later when the pandemic moved to other countries. For example, in the United States, I can't remember how many millions of people have tested positive, but we assume that there are probably many more who never got tested as well, who had mild illness. So initially there were questions about the figures, but the reason why I think they're fairly accurate, that they reflect the reality of a very low COVID situation, is you're talking about a country that has probably the strictest zero tolerance policy to COVID of anywhere in the world. I mean, as I said, in Australia, if you're under lockdown, you're still able to go out to the supermarket, buy your groceries. Whereas those communities that get locked down now in Chinese cities, they're genuinely locked down. There are security guards out the front of the compound. There are temperature testing. Uh, when I was there for the first nine months of the pandemic, you know, we traveled to Shanghai, we flew down to the Southern Island of Hainan. I went to a beer festival in the eastern city of Qingdao, it was pretty obvious to me that if there was a genuine COVID outbreak situation that was being covered up, you would know. You, you would notice it. You would notice local restrictions when you turn up to these places. The reality is their testing levels, their 21-day quarantine for people who go into the country. I mean, they got to the point where some people I know, some foreign travellers who entered China, they were even subjected to anal swabs after 20 days of hotel oh. quarantine just to make sure that there was no traces of COVID in their fecal matter. I mean, there's an extreme nature to the COVID containment in China, <laughs> which we can't quite understand in Australia. But it means when you see those incredibly low figures, I believe they're probably close to what's really happening. So what do you make of this Delta outbreak, Bill? Um, the reporting says it came from a traveller from Moscow on July 10. As you said earlier, we're looking at a few hundred cases a day, given that that's a small number relative to their population, can they continue with their same zero tolerance approach or will Delta change the game in China as it has everywhere else? Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing, right? It's so similar to Australia. For the first time, we've seen some Chinese epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts start to publicly 
talk about living with the virus, not directly criticising the government's policy because it's China, it's very difficult to do that, but to kind of talk in a way which suggests that, hey, we need to rethink this zero tolerance policy because, yeah, Delta is very difficult to contain. Officially, they still think within a few weeks they'll be able to snuff it out, but I think there's a realisation that even if they can, it will come back into the country and cause further problems. So the vaccination rates at the moment, officially they claim more than 1.5, 1.6 billion doses have been distributed. Do we believe that? Probably. It's probably close to accurate. So I know in Shanghai, for example, an epidemiologist there says there's an 85% vaccination rate in Shanghai alone, a city of 20 million. A lot of jobs are dependent on vaccines. A lot of people are being organised into vaccine programs through their employers. The compliance rate for various reasons is a lot higher. So I suppose the strategy is the same as Australia. Get everybody vaccinated and then open the borders. But here's the thing. As you might have been seeing in some media reports, there are some concerns about the efficacy rates mm. of the Chinese vaccines. Mm. And even though the efficacy rates do appear to be similar to AstraZeneca, we have seen anecdotally in countries like Indonesia cases where you have a few health workers who have been fully vaccinated and then subsequently died. So I don't know if the Chinese leadership is fully confident that even if they vaccinate everyone, that they could open the borders. And there has been some talk by health experts that what China needs to do is develop mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer one and perhaps give boosters, which means that they might not really open their borders for, it could be like Australia, it could be a very long time. I wanted to ask about the vaccine because obviously it's been um, not just used in China, but as you say, other countries have had access to it, including Indonesia. Different countries are sort of grading these vaccinations differently. In America, for instance, you know, they don't look at AstraZeneca in the same way. You mentioned that about the efficacy, but what does that mean for maybe people in China wanting to come to Australia? We know we rely on higher education here. We need Chinese students to come back. But if they have had a vaccination that we don't recognise, how's that going to work? Yeah, Annika, it's a question of whether or not the Australian uh, authorities will at some point recognise those Chinese vaccines. I suspect at some point they will because the WHO recognises them. It's approved them for emergency use. And the actual vaccine technology that both Sinopharm and Sinovac uses is sort of tried and tested traditional technology. It might not have the efficacy rates of Pfizer, but the WHO, based on the clinical studies, sort of said, oh, you know, it's around, I think, about the 70-something, maybe 80%. So it's not that low. It's comparable to AstraZeneca. As you say, the economic pressure of letting Chinese tourists and students back in will be huge and surely requiring them to go get dosed again with something else would be quite a burden. So I think nothing's imminent because of the Australian border situation, but it would strike me as odd if the Australian side didn't end up recognising in a reciprocal way those Chinese vaccines because on the flip side, you don't want a situation where the Chinese government requires everybody coming into the country to have been vaccinated with Chinese vaccines. So there has to be a bit of compromise on all sides. That was Bill Birdles, ABC China correspondent, who wrote a book called The Truth About China. Check that out if you want to hear more. Interesting to hear about the range of strategies they have to deal with COVID, Annika, from their data-based digital tools through to very localised control of those residential apartment blocks. It seems for them, even if Delta wreaks havoc, it won't be this binary switch of zero COVID versus living with COVID that we're debating here in Australia. They can more just change these various dials of the settings. 
Yeah, and I guess that goes down to a you know deeper issue between our two countries, the idea that we live in what we consider a free democratic society and they have a different system and that goes to so many of these ideas. We get people upset about using the tracing app or being forced to have a vaccine. A lot of those choices are taken away over there, but it does also come with a positive that you can manage it pretty well. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to take you through the UN's IPCC climate report and find out exactly what it means for Australia. Listener.